Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. Well, after 20 years, Kobe played his last NBA game. We'll take a look back at his career and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 24 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Bridge. It is good to be back. I wish I could say I had a little bit more of a tan, considering I had to miss last week's show because I was on vacation at the lovely Virginia Beach. The weather was very nice. The sun was out for all of the days I was there. The only problem was it was windy. So windy. It was like the wind you encounter at opening day of a baseball or a softball game in March or early April. The sun might be out, you think the weather might be nice because you're on the diamond, but there's that wind and it's cold and you're miserable and it's like being at a fall football game in November. But somehow I may do. The trip was great. It was nice to get away. The only unfortunate thing was that two historic things happened and happened to have happened on the same night on Wednesday. When Kobe Bryant played in his final basketball game in his 20-year career with the Los Angeles Lakers, but not to be outdone, the Golden State Warriors set the NBA record for regular season wins with 73, 73 and 9 for the 2015-2016 season, beating the Bulls 1995-1996 record of 72 and 10 a record that many people thought would never be touched, never would be broken. The Warriors had other plans coming off that championship from last season. So with such a historic night happening with me hanging out in the hotel, both games were on the West Coast, so they didn't start till about 10.30 East Coast time. You would think I would be glued to the TV for the whole night. Well, that was not the case. After driving seven plus hours, spending much of the day in the car, I managed to get to halftime of Kobe Bryant's game, his final game, and went to bed. Kobe was in the 20s, I believe, as far as points were concerned. He wasn't shooting incredibly great. He had a pretty rusty start, was missing a lot of early shots. And I just figured, well, he's going to play a little bit more. He'll get a pretty big standing ovation, of course, when he does get pulled from the game at some point. The crowd will go crazy. Little did I know I would wake up to the news that not only did the Lakers win, which is shocking in itself, but that Kobe Bryant, Kobe Bean Bryant, scored 60 points in his final basketball game. 60 points on 50 shots. Those numbers are numbers that I would have never predicted have happened. Maybe the 50 shots because... You could joke that Kobe loved to shoot and his last game out, he would want to go out with a bang and just chuck up shots every time he touched the ball. 
his teammates wanted him to shoot, everybody that paid home mortgages and sold their 401ks and firstborn children to get to the game, wanted to see him shoot. And boy, did he put on a show. It was pretty much just like watching an exhibition game, but it was the best exhibition game I've ever seen. It'd be something like you would see at your local court or when neighborhood basketball in New York City was really popular in the 70s and 80s, and that's where you would find some of the best players in the world, not in the NBA, but on those courts. It was just something that you could tell your kids about. And what a way for Kobe to end his career, to score 60 points, to be basically his vintage self at the end of the fourth quarter, going, I believe, five for five near the end, hitting his final shot of his career at the free throw line, which is exactly where he scored his first points of his career, getting an assist, which ironically enough, you wouldn't expect that to be his final play that put the Lakers ahead and gave them the slim victory. It would have been nice if the game actually meant something. Their opponent, the Utah Jazz, were just eliminated earlier that day as far as getting to the playoffs, so they didn't have anything to play for anymore. The Lakers broke the record for their worst season in franchise history, so obviously they didn't have anything to play for. So Kobe, as he said, would have loved to go out playing in the NBA Finals, playing for that sixth championship, but it just wasn't meant to be. This, you could argue, was and is the next best thing that could have happened to him. So that's pretty much where I wanted to focus this episode on. And I do have a guest that joined me who is incredibly knowledgeable with the early years of Kobe Bryant's career because he worked for the Los Angeles Daily News for seven of them. So he was around for the first three championships, one in the early 2000s the Kobe and Shaq years, if you will, when they built that mini dynasty in that three-year stretch. I do plan to eventually touch on the Golden State Warriors, so don't think I'm skipping over them as far as where they stand as one of the greatest teams of all time. Are they the greatest team of all time? Do they need a championship to be such? We'll get into that soon enough, but for now, it seems like they'll be playing in a couple more series in the NBA playoffs They already have a two games to none lead over the Houston Rockets, so it seems like they'll at least be moving on one more round, so we don't have to necessarily touch on that topic yet, because many do argue they do need that championship, so we'll see what happens down the road. But the Kobe Bryant conversation is definitely one that needs to be had, and I was fortunate enough to be joined by Howard Beck to have that conversation. He currently is a senior writer for Bleacher Report. He's in his 19th season covering the NBA, and like I said, he spent seven seasons from 1997 to 2004 covering the Lakers for the Los Angeles Daily News. He then moved on to the New York Times, spent nine years with them covering the Knicks, covering the Nets, covering the NBA at large, and now he does have a radio show, the NBA Sunday Tip, on Sirius XM Bleacher Report Radio, as well as being their senior writer for them, and he's currently in L.A. covering the Portland Trailblazers Los Angeles Clippers series and was thankfully available to have a little discussion about Kobe Bryant, what he meant to the Lakers and some of the highlights throughout his career, especially those that he was actually there for and was able to cover. So as you know, when I do have a guest, I don't want to spend too much time rambling because I feel that you may lose interest in my voice, even though it does sound magnificent through this microphone and even through these new headphones that I actually just recently received. 
not as a gift, but did purchase their status headphones. If you're really looking for a sweet pair of studio headphones or just headphones in general to wear while you're listening to music, Status has some incredible options at very affordable prices for the product that you end up getting. And no, they did not pay me to say any of that information. I just figured I'd give it to you anyway as a common courtesy to my loyal listeners and music lovers. But without further ado, let me turn things over to Mr. Beck. He was able to provide some fantastic insight from his days with the LA Daily News and some things he was able to write about while he was with them and some personal stories he has from Kobe Bryant's career, including one from his final game. I will include a link to his Bleacher Report page in my show notes, and you could read his story about that final game entitled Kobe's Unforgettable Finale, A Perfectly Drawn Portrait. Some pretty great insight from that game. You can also follow him on Twitter. He is at Howard Beck. That's the common spelling for Howard and B-E-C-K. At Howard Beck, he's got a pretty solid pulse in the NBA. If you ever want to know what's currently going on in the league, he's probably tweeted something about it. So he's a great source for current news and obviously a great source for some of the teams and events he was able to cover in the past. And we'll get a little bit of a taste of that in our discussion. We are here with Howard Beck. He is a senior writer for Bleacher Report, and he spent seven seasons from 1997 to 2004 covering the Lakers for the Los Angeles Daily News. He's actually in L.A. right now. Kind enough to take some time to speak with me. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Well, I was on vacation for Kobe's finale, his last game, and I'll be honest, I actually went to bed at halftime, assuming that nothing too spectacular would happen, and how oh, no. wrong was I? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, yeah. He, he had some vintage Kobe moments, to say the least, and I wanted to touch on that to start a little bit with, because I know in your latest Bleacher Report article talking about that final game, for the people that don't know or may not have read it yet, I will attach it in the show notes for anyone interested. I know you went to L.A. about three three weeks before that game to kind of give Kobe a goodbye and send your not condolences for him retiring, but just give him a thanks for what he's done. And he told you to basically come back. So could you tell everybody how that exchange went when you thought that maybe you could get away with not going to his final game? Yeah, well, I had had no plans to attend his, his final game. Um, you know, mostly because I, live in New York now. It's a long way from Los Angeles. Um, So I had seen Kobe back in November, I guess it was, when he came in to play the Knicks and Nets in a single weekend. And I wrote about his his farewell to the Garden then, and I got a chance to chat with him a little bit. And he hadn't announced his his retirement yet, but yeah, it was pretty obvious. I mean, I expected this to be his final year. Um, But I I hadn't seen him since then. We just had not crossed paths anywhere. And I thought, you know, I was in L.A. in it was like March 22nd, I think it was. I was out here to work on a separate project. And I thought, oh, the Lakers are home. I'll go to Lakers Grizzlies and uh, give me a chance to go say goodbye to Kobe. He's coming down the home stretch here. I'm not going to be here for the finale. Uh, Kevin Ding, one of my colleagues, is based in L.A., and I figured he would cover the finale anyway. So I really had no reason to think I was going to be back. And so I see Kobe post-game. He finishes with the, you know, the, the post-game interview, and I – go up to say, hey, and he say, hey, what's up? I said, I came to say thanks and goodbye. And and he, he gets, you know, this like indignant look and kind of smacks me on the chest like, 
You know, what do you mean? What are you talking about? You're not going to be here on the 13th? No, we we can curse on this podcast, so if you really (laughs) want to tell everybody what he had to say. (laughs) He says, you can't be here at 17 and not be here for fucking 37, man. And 17 being his age when he came in to the league and 37 at the end. Now, he's off a little bit because when I met him, he was 19. So I I was there at 19, not at 17. But but that was his his point. And so he's like, come on, man, finish the journey, man. (laughs) And and I think think there was one other F-bomb in there somewhere. But but it was basically like, you know, shaming me into, into, into coming back or, or, you know, scolding me into coming back. Right. Saying, you know, you, you need to be here at the end. And I thought it was really interesting, especially when you think about Kobe talking about how his next career is going to be in, in the art of storytelling, that he, he wants to be, and I think he is a very good storyteller. If you saw Kobe Bryant's news and if, you, if you've seen uh, some of the shorter things he's done uh, with the Players' Tribune, he's got, a, I think, a real feel for it. And so that he would want this symmetry and that he would have this sentimental inclination. And, and as I noted in the column that I wrote off that, you know, last week, he's not been a sentimental guy in my experience. So that he had this moment where it was like urging me, I mean, it's not like we're friends, you know, right. we're, we're not boys, we're not <laughs> hanging out. Um, I'm just a guy who covered him for seven years from 97 to 2004 during, you know, obviously a pretty critical part of his career. But he's saying, come back. Come back and and John Black, the Lakers' longtime PR guy, who is a friend of mine, was standing you know not too far off, just kind of chuckling to himself. And when when Kobe and I parted ways that night, um, John just kind of laughed, and I said, "I guess I'll see you on the 13th. I guess I'm coming back." And I still wasn't sure at that moment, but you know, I went back to New York, talked talk to matters, and I said, "You know what? I, let's let's do this. There's you know, there's there's a good reason to to do this. Uh, it'll give me a chance to reflect." write something off of it. I'll stay and I'll, I'll cover some Clipper playoffs, which is what I'm still doing in LA now. Um, but it was, it was a fun little moment and uh, you know, not what I expected. Not, and I, I certainly didn't expect him to come back for his finale. And then I certainly didn't expect his finale as we talked about to, uh, to, you know, unfold the way it did 60 shots, 50 points. I, I, I still can't wrap my head around it. No, I still haven't been able to either. And like you said, it's hard to say no to that when Kobe kind of gives you that little nudge. Like, hey, man, I mean, I'm doing this. Yep. You got to come along for it, too. All right. I guess I can find some time. And I do find that interesting. And I'll get into that a little bit later because we did see a side of Kobe this season that we never really had before. But as far as the game is concerned, the magnitude of that final game, it was built up with the media. The ticket prices were outrageous. The Staples Center, the surrounding areas filled to the gills. And I know you've covered a lot of pretty important games in L.A. with all the NBA finals they were able to get to. From what we saw on TV, it looked like a pretty similar setting to that sort of magnitude of a game. What would you rate the atmosphere like and what was it the buzz kind of like for that particular game? Well, I mean, you hit it. it. It was like a really big playoff game. It was like a game seven. It was like a finals game. It just had that kind of vibe there. I mean, the place was packed to the hilt. There were four to 500 media members there. Um, they had to use the auxiliary room that they used for finals press conferences. They had to open up and use for uh, Kobe's post game. Um, it was, you know, just the, the energy in the building was intense the there was like almost like an, a little bit of anxiety too like we don't know what Kobe's going to do here we don't know how you know you wanted to see him go out the right way and you weren't sure what that was going to be and then he misses his first five shots of the night and he's kind of stumbling around out there and he's shooting air balls and um but 
you know, it, it's it, this doesn't happen very often. You know, a lot of times when a legend goes, they, you know, they wait till the off season and then they say, "That's it, I'm, I'm retiring. I'm not coming back." Get to see them give a farewell performance. Um, or in you know Michael Jordan's case with the Bulls, he won a championship and, and made his, the last shot of his career to, to win the game in '98. And of course, he came back with the Wizards a few years later, but nobody really you know thinks about that much. But right. um, but but Jordan didn't have a, a farewell moment where you knew he was going. This was very different, where this was open and out there, like okay, guys, this is it. Every game I play on the road is the last game I play in, in a particular arena, and. Everybody could prepare for this, and and people wanted to be part of it, and you know you expect it to be an emotional evening, and I think it, it it absolutely was, especially for the fans and and for former teammates and everybody else who came to to see him. Um, it was intense, and and that, the most it was the most intense, meaningless game I've ever been to. And I don't mean obviously, <laughs> it, it was meaningful. It was an incredibly meaningful evening. The game itself was meaningless because, of course, neither team had anything at stake at that point, but. Um, for, uh, of all the games I've covered, and there's been over a thousand, I think, um, in 19 years covering the NBA, I've covered, you know, obviously a lot of NBA finals and a lot of big playoff games. This is going to be one of the most memorable games I've covered, though it was not technically a meaningful game, you know, competitively. Uh, it, it just had a, a different resonance to it. And uh, it was it was a really fun evening to uh, to be there for. It was almost like, an exhibition game, really, like something you would see down at like Rucker. If you're just going to go to one of your local courts and you see the guys that play there all the time and somebody's just going to be the person that shoots the entire night. His teammates, of course, were encouraging him to shoot, which he, of course, mentioned is incredibly funny because he's always being told to pass more. And before the game, if you had predicted Kobe's going to shoot 50 shots tonight, everybody would probably say, well, yeah, of course he will. This is his final game. But to get 60 points, the first time he did that since 2009, I believe, did you ever see something like this coming? And how fun was it to be there and experience something like that, especially in the fourth quarter when he really had one last final glimpse of that vintage Kobe that we were able to see for his entire career? Yeah, and then that was great too because you know even though in his prime he would have never needed fifty shots to get sixty points, right? In his prime, because his games were more meaningful, he would have never taken fifty shots, and nobody would have allowed him to take fifty shots. But by doing it, it did give us some sense of like a, a an appropriate send off to see Kobe summoning a little bit of his old game, and you know some of those shots they were they were tough shots. He made some tough shots, and you know that was. The beauty of Kobe's game a lot of the time in, in his prime was the fact that he could take and make shots that no one else could. Um, contested shots, off-balance shots, you know, just impossible fadeaways. He, you know, he did. He gave everybody uh, something to remember him by, you know, on that final night, which is a rare thing. You don't usually get to go out that way. Um, so there was that aspect of it. Um, I, no one would have predicted he was going to take 50 shots Obviously, Kobe wouldn't have predicted he was going to take fifty. <laughs> no, shots. no. Um, especially well, even Shaq wanted five. him to score fifty points on TV a couple yeah. weeks before the game, and he was like, "No, I don't think so. <laughs> I'll just see at the yeah. game. I don't think so." You know what? Here's the thing, and I know people will look at it and go, "Oh, well, fifty shots." But guess what? There are a lot of guys you could hand the ball to and say, "Go get, you know, go take fifty shots," and they're still not going to get sixty points. Right. Um, and taking fifty shots is is actually hard work. And that's the thing. You look at the kind of shots he took. Those were they were tough shots. Those these weren't just open jumpers. He was having to work for them, a lot of them. And at age thirty seven, with all the miles on him, 
you know, I mean, Kobe's 37 is some is like the average player is probably 42 because he came in at 18. He was 18 and he, he uh, as a rookie. Um, he goes to, you know, what, four, five, six, seven, seven finals. Yep. Um, so the Olympics. <laughs> that's a lot of, yeah. And the Olympics, that's a lot of extra miles on your body. And not to mention the Achilles injury and the knee injury and the shoulder injury and everything that he fought back from. So he's, you know, you think about all that 50 shots is not easy to do and scoring that 60 points at any age, there haven't been that many people score 60 in the history of the NBA. And Kobe's now done it. I I had the number in my story, but multiple times. Um, It's just an incredible mind boggling way to, to have, gone out and uh you know we were all thinking before the game if he got 30 that would be a really nice way to go out 37 would be cool because it would be kind of like poetic because he's 37 years old but you know 40 50 60 <laughs> no, nobody saw that it was nice for the lakers as well to get a win because for the fans that's obviously something that hasn't come very easy this season so for them to at least get that as well it was a great way to go out And I wanted to turn back the clock a little bit to get into some of your time with the L.A. Daily News, because when you started, he would have been in his second season, I would presume. So he was just getting his feet wet with the NBA, coming out of high school. No one really knew what to expect from him. Do you remember what some of your early impressions were of him, both on the floor and then in your interactions with him off of it? Well, from the get-go, I thought he was just a really – good guy to deal with. I mean, he, he just, it, early on, he was, he was uh, open and engaging. He didn't carry himself like a star. I mean, some guys have come into this league with a lot of hype surrounding them and you can tell it affected them from the get go. They'd hold themselves a little bit at arm's length. They weren't real personable. Kobe was personable. He was approachable. He always made time for not just the beat writers, but sometimes just random people, random media people who, who he hadn't even seen before would say, Hey, can I follow up? I got one more thing for you. Like after the big media scrum and they would say, can I, can I get you a few minutes for you? You know, and it would be some podunk radio station from like, you know, 60 miles outside of LA and he would do it. Um, and so, you know, the, the guy that people look at, think of him now and, and they're like, Oh, it's just this Mamba guy. And he's angry all the time and he's cursing all the time and his jaw is sticking out and he's, you know, and he's, he's, uh, he's hard on everybody. He's mean, he's this, he's that. That wasn't the guy I knew those first seven years. Now, he had that, that element to him. You know, Kobe was intensely competitive and it was just an intense individual, intensely focused. And he, you know, certainly was a guy who um, could be, at his worst, very difficult to deal with. And the fights with Shaq, the feuds with Shaq, certainly amped up a lot of that. And the tension over time did grow. And there was the estrangement from his parents in the, in the early part of the 2000s, where that, I think, bled into his other relationships. Um, you know, he fired his, his, his first agent, Arn Tellum, around that time. Um, and so all of that, there was a time there where I, I've, I've said I thought he kind of lost his humanity. Like he, his relationships with, with team staffers were strained, with some media was strained. Um, but the early, especially the first half of my time covering him, 97 to about, say, 2000, 2001, I, I liked dealing with him a lot. He never blew us off, never blew off the, the beat writers, um, was always more available and more more pleasant to us than Shaq. You know, Shaq would have these days where he'd be entertaining as hell. 
but he'd have a lot of other days where he was just brooding and, you know, giving us, you know, short cliched answers and we're not talking at all. Kobe was the better one to deal with for most of that time. And, you know, I appreciated that about him because, you know, with the stars, you, you never know. Um, but uh, he never carried himself that way, especially in those early years. So when the Kobe and Shaq era really started to take off, eventually leading to 2000, that Game 7 comeback against the Blazers in the Western Conference Finals, they go on to beat Reggie Miller and win the championship for the first ring in L.A. since 88. Was there a point in that season or maybe leading up to that season a couple of years before that where you got the sense that maybe something was really brewing and something special was about to happen? It was hard to see it coming because, you know, Kobe comes in as a skinny teenager and, you know, if you go back and look at his rookie year, I mean, nobody was expecting, he was the 13th pick in the draft. Nobody was expecting, you know, this, this skinny high school kid to take over the league. Right. Um, and, you know, uh, year two, 97, 98, my first year covering them, Kobe's a bench player. He made the all-star team based on popularity alone, but he wasn't even a starter on his own team. Kobe didn't start, uh, become a, a full-time starter until his third season. And even then it was because some combination of injuries. I remember it was like Rick Fox was out. I think uh, and Robert Ory was out. Like it was all simultaneous. A bunch of guys were out. And then Kobe starts, I think he started against Scottie Pippen at the forum. And that was like his first start. And like he did, then he just never let go of it after that. But, um, you know, they, and they had this this core group that they had joined with with Nick Van Exel and Eddie Jones, Neldon Campbell, and Shaq and Kobe come in. And you've got this interesting array of players and plenty of talent, but you know they they kept flaming out in the playoffs. So no no nobody knew there was a dynasty coming. Um, I don't think you could you could see that at all. And when Phil Jackson got here in '99, uh, they had just been swept in the second round by the Spurs. The Spurs won the championship that year, and. Phil Jackson comes in with obviously some expectations because this is the guy who got Michael and, and Scotty pulled them together and, and Dennis Rodman and, and, you know, he's famous for corralling egos and getting everybody to, to play together. And he's got six championships under his belt, but coming to LA, you know, you didn't know was Phil Jackson going to be able to have the same success with Shaq and Kobe. We didn't know that at that time. And Kobe was still, you know, kind of, you know, a maturing kid i mean he was still trying to, to figure out who he was and what he could do in the league and shack was shack and they you know and, and everybody wondered about the surrounding cast too i mean I'll, I'll never forget every year fans were always clamoring for replacing Derek fisher and robert ory right it was always robert robert ory's not good enough at power forward he's he's, he's too skinny he can't guard carl malone and uh and rasheed wallace and sean kemp and chris weber like nobody thought that, that robert ory could be a starting power forward and Derek fisher was too slow so every year they wanted to replace these guys. So no, the expectations were not there that this was going to happen. Um, and I've, I've pointed it out many times. I'll point it out again. And you you alluded to it. Game seven of the 2000 conference finals, they're down 15 points in the fourth quarter. They should have lost that game. Game And then in 2002, they had to go to game seven again and go into overtime against the Kings. So two out of the three years that they win a championship, they very easily could not have, you know, could have missed, uh, could have easily missed the finals entirely. Could have been one title instead of three. So it's, uh, you know, you never saw it coming. Um, there was great competition during that period. That Portland team in 2000 was phenomenal. That Kings team was great. There were great Spurs teams during that time. Um, the the West was brutal. Now you mentioned a couple of those teams, and I think what's interesting about 
general fans of the NBA is people usually remember who plays in the finals and who wins, but they don't usually remember who those particular teams played leading up to that. And in that one year in 2001, the Lakers end up sweeping those first three rounds against those really great teams, the Blazers, the Kings, and the Spurs. They lose game one to Allen Iverson and then win the other four for the best postseason record in NBA history, which no one's really come close to that. How impressive was that particular run where it just seemed like they were pretty much untouchable because Shaq was in his prime, Kobe was really coming around, and as you mentioned, those role players that everyone wanted out of town were really doing their thing as well. Well, yeah, I mean, you think about three championships in a row and you think, okay, dynasty, and you think dominance, and of course, as, as we were just talking about, like, you know, two of those three years, it, they weren't exactly dominant in the playoffs, and actually, they were constantly flirting with disaster, especially the first year. They, you know, best of five first round at that time, and they needed a fifth game to put away the Kings in the first round in 2000. Right. And then, you know, they, they were flirting with disaster against the Blazers several times. So that was the only time that they were truly, truly dominant was, as you're, you you mentioned, that 2001 season. They they sweep the first three rounds, so they go 11-0, because, again, it was best of five at that time in the first round. So it was 3-0, 4-0, 4-0. And they had like a, a week and a half break or something between the conference finals and the finals waiting for the Sixers. And, you know, that probably caused, you know, we always debate rest versus rust. And I think they were rusty. I think they were just, you know, their senses were dulled and they come out and they lose game one to the Sixers, but then they, you know, obliterate them the next four games. If not for that long layoff, you know, maybe they would have gone 15 and 0. Um, Instead of instead of uh, I guess it ended up being what wait no fifteen and one right yeah it could have been could have been fifteen and zero, um, you know it was one of those things where Shaq and Kobe had set aside their their differences as they usually did when it came time to win a championship, they were in perfect sync with each other, and yeah Rick Fox Robert Ory Derek Fisher three guys who were willing to do everything else who defended their tails off who hit all those open threes. Um, and that, you know, that was the one stretch of time where you thought this team, you know, is, this is an all-timer. This is a truly dominant team. The re- regular season record didn't necessarily reflect it, um, but that playoff run was as great as I've ever seen. Right, because they lost, I believe it was 11 more games than they did the season before that in the regular season. Do you put a lot of the emphasis on what caused them to win those first three finals in Kobe's career in LA because of Shaq or how much influence do you think Kobe was able to have as far as those three finals were concerned? Because obviously when he won his last two, I think they might mean a little bit more because he didn't necessarily have that other guy, even though he did have Paul Gasol, which a lot of people for whatever reason forget about, but it was always Kobe and Shaq, and without Shaq, he would have never won them. How much do you think Shaq meant to those teams, and what influence did Kobe have on those first three rings? Well, the fact is, nobody wins these things alone in the NBA, and unless you're talking about the 2004 Pistons, nobody wins without a couple of Hall of Famers. Um, you know, LeBron, LeBron couldn't win titles in Cleveland because he didn't have enough talent around him. He needed he needed Wade and Bosh in Miami. Um, and, you know, Duncan Ginobili, Parker. I mean, it's, it's always two, three guys who are elite players. And, you know, and they don't always mesh either. Sometimes we get elite players together in this league and, and they, they don't, they can't get the best out of each other and they can't figure out a way to, to thrive simultaneously and, and bring out the best in each other. Shaq and Kobe 
the, the, the frustrating thing with them was that they knew very well how to, to, to work well together. They just didn't always do it. <laughs> um, but it took both of them for sure. I mean, Shaq during that stretch of time was, as he would put it, the most dominant player in the NBA, one of the most dominant of all time, and was just a, a bear for teams to deal with because he was so big. He was so strong, so powerful, nimble on his feet, incredibly athletic. And, you know, people thought oh, it's just about the dunking. There was so much more to his game, his footwork and a uh, little hook shot in the lane. And, you know, he had this need to to just crush people like Shaq. It was right. never enough to score. It was never enough to score. He wanted to break the friggin' rim. He wanted to shatter the backboard, which he once did in Orlando uh, in, his, in his earlier days. He wanted to dunk on you. He wanted to embarrass you. He wanted to, uh, he, he took, he relished just wrecking teams. <laughs> and they, they, that was the joy of, of Shaq at that time. Um, he didn't always work as hard as Kobe in the offseason. We know that. That was a big part of their differences with each other. Um, but Shaq was a beast. He just, and if you look, you know, he was the, the, the MVP of all three of those finals that they won together. Right. Kobe was critical, absolutely critical to those finals runs and bailed them out, especially there was a series against the Spurs, I remember, where Kobe had some huge games and some against the Kings as well. And without him, they don't get there. Um but Shaq was the guy who ultimately delivers in the finals. He because he was the guy. Not that either of them were guardable, but Shaq was just such a unique quantity that he's the guy that that teams had to think about first. Um, and th- there's there was just no matchup for Shaq. Well, in the blink of an eye, it, it seemed like all of that quickly quickly came to an end. There was the 2004 loss to the Detroit Pistons. And I don't know if we want to do the math, but it seems like once you left the paper, that's when things started going downhill. So (laughs) I don't know if you're to blame, but, you know, the Kobe and Shaq era come to an end. There was the rape allegations with Kobe in Colorado. And like you mentioned previously, just everything going on off court could have really spiraled him out of control. And we see that a lot in today's day and age with guys like Johnny Manziel and everyone in the news that can't seem to get their life together. Was there a fear maybe from some people in the media or people close to the situation that might have thought that with what was going on, maybe that would have affected his career and his performance on the court? Yeah, it's hard to remember back to think back, but I would say that when, I mean, obviously everybody was shocked when, when the news first came out about Kobe being charged in Colorado in the first place. And that certainly was, that that season was uh, one where, you know, you had, you, you wondered a little bit, you know, how, how was he going to come out of this personally, professionally, um, you know, uh, and I don't, I don't, you know, he lost all of his endorsements at that time. So it certainly had an impact on him as an individual and a business person. And as a, you know, in terms of his, his image as a, as a celebrity, um, I don't know if anybody ever thought it was going to be the end of his career. I mean, I, to the extent that, yes, look, these were very serious charges. And if it had gone to trial, um, you know, you're talking jail time. Yeah, that, that could have been the end of his career. But it never went to trial because, uh, you know, the woman declined to testify. And then there was a civil case that was eventually settled out of court. And we'll never know exactly what those details were. But, um you know, it, it, it lingered for a while. And about that time, yeah, in 2004, I left LA. So I didn't, I wasn't there to kind of see the day to day after that about, you know, how, you know, once it was settled, once the case was settled, like how, 
how did things evolve from there in terms of how Kobe was viewed or, you know, his, his kind of his road back that, that part to me is a little bit um, harder to, to get a handle on. Cause I wasn't, right. I wasn't around day to day anymore. I was in New York by that time. When he was able to win those two championships and even get to a finals losing to the Celtics from what he was able to do and kind of have that resurgence for his career and get to five and put his name up with all the greats. He was always chasing Michael Jordan, but even just in L.A. lore, getting into those rafters, if you will, with some of the other great players that have come through L.A. What do you think that those championships meant to his legacy what he was able to do to get those rings to put that stigma away that he needed Shaq in order to win even though as we mentioned Paul Gasol was pretty close if you're a Lakers fan you know he was really the Shaq if you will for those championships but just on its base from what he was able to do finishing his career toward the end of his prime how important do you think that was and where does that kind of rank him among the lore of the NBA because of it well, Kobe needed those two championships, I think, for his own peace of mind, not just because he was trying to chase Michael and wanted to get the six, but Shaq was viewed as the one to Kobe's 1A. And, you know, that that was, you know, there were so many things that drove them apart um, that were so much more than just, oh, battle of egos and this kind of thing. There were a lot of things that drove them apart. And there were a lot of reasons why I think the Lakers probably in retrospect maybe maybe made the right move and, and deciding to, to, you know, break them up when they did. Um, you don't win without help. Pau Gasol is, is a, a stud in his own right, much different than Shaq, but, you know, uh, the perfect, he was the perfect teammate for Kobe because he had the talent to be a number one, but didn't have the the uh, the burning need to be that guy. In fact, I think preferred to be kind of the, the secondary star. But for Kobe, it meant the validation of saying, I can lead a team to the, to, to the finals. You know, even though Kobe was, you know, they don't, the Lakers don't win either any of those first three championships without Kobe. It was still, it was Shaq winning MVP of the finals every year. It was Shaq who won, five, who won MVP of the regular season in 2000. It was Shaq who everybody said, this is who the team is built around. And Kobe's, you know, kind of the secondary guy. For Kobe's own, I think, satisfaction, for his, his self-image, for who he saw himself as, and his place in the game, what he wanted to accomplish, what he wanted to be remembered for. I think it was, and actually, and also just as, as a guy who was moving into his, you know, later 20s, later part of his prime, you know, wanting to, wanting that responsibility, wanting to, to, to be the guy who the team was built around. So he, he got that opportunity. He made the most of it. He leads them to three more finals and two championships. And I think that was absolutely, in his mind, absolutely critical to how his career uh, would be completed. Like he, he needed that opportunity, and he needed those championships without Shaq. So to close this out, I know you had mentioned, and we had spoken about, he was pretty much having a going-away party whenever he went on the road. Pomp and circumstance, the announcers really built it up, a lot of videos, which almost seemed to go against... Pretty much everything that, say, like the number eight Kobe would have stood for, that competitor where he just wanted to basically rip your throat out and stomp on it. For the fans, the players, the coaches, the media, everyone, he just had targets on everyone's back. Whereas this year we saw that different side where he just seemed very accepted of everything. He wanted to really soak it in, and it was a side of Kobe that many people might not have seen. And even younger fans growing up might be like, wow, this guy just really enjoyed playing basketball, and they don't really know of that killer instinct like some of the older fans do. 
Were you surprised of the outpouring of recognition he received from the players and the media and the fans and just how this season ended up unfolding when he announced he was going to retire? I think it's about what I expected. I mean, I don't think he necessarily wanted it initially, and I, I think there's a part of him that was very uncomfortable with it, but just kind of learned to embrace it. He he liked being the villain much more than he liked being embraced. I mean, he liked being embraced by L.A., but you know, having opponents and rivals and, and fans who used to boo you cheering for, I think it was genuinely weird for him. Um, but I think it also, I think he did appreciate it. I, you know, there's, there's a softer side of Kobe that we saw these last several months. Uh, the more human side of Kobe, the, the guy who, you know, does appreciate, um, uh, you know, other people and uh, sentiment and nostalgia and, you know, warm feelings, all these things that people thought he was possibly uh, incapable of. Those are just things he kind of buried because that's what he felt he had to do, I think, to, to be the player that he wanted to be. He had to be singularly focused, hyper-focused um, at the expense of a lot of other things. And, uh, you know, he, he let down, uh, he, you know, he, 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 you know, took down the wall basically for this final run. And that was good to see. The Kobe that we saw these last several months, is closer to the, to the guy I met back in 97. And uh, I'm, I'm glad, you know, that was that was the, the, the Kobe that he kind of went out as. I was going to say, it, it had to be great for you to see that kind of come out of him again, that youthful Kobe that was just soaking everything in and just being happy to be in the league. So I can't leave you without asking. I know you're in L.A. covering the Clippers-Blazers series. Is it as easy for us to just assume that we're going to get a rematch of last year's NBA Finals with the Warriors and the Cavs? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's not an exciting uh, prediction, but I, it's hard to see right now that there's going to be any outcome other than Warriors-Cavs. Now, if Steph Curry's ankle is somehow worse than expected, that could throw a kink into things. Um, and, yeah, look, the fact is there are a couple other really great teams in the West. The Spurs are a fantastic team. Uh, it's not inconceivable that they could knock off the Warriors. Uh, the Clippers and, and Thunder have a chance depending on how things go. And I, I'm always saying, you know, the playoffs, strange things can happen. You know, right. an injury, a, a bad call, just a glitch here or there, and it turns things in ways that we don't expect. But as we sit here right now, should it be Warriors-Cavs? Yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to confidently predict anything other than that outcome. But, uh, you know, I think the Cavs still have, you know, they're dealing with their usual chemistry issues. Um, they should still come out of the East, but they might shoot themselves in the foot. Wouldn't surprise me. Um, but on balance, yeah, it's probably it's probably Warriors <laughs> and Cavs again, and it's probably another Warriors championship. Well, even though we've had a couple early blowouts in these opening rounds, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of fun things for you to be able to write about, and we will continue following whatever your next assignment will be down the road. Thank you for your time tonight, sir. I really appreciate it. Your insight was great, and hopefully we can have you on again soon and talk about players that are still in the league and, and teams that are still competing for something. But I really do appreciate your time. It was great having you on. No, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it uh, and enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, sir. Enjoy the sun. All right, John. Take care. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this episode and all previous episodes on my website at www.londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge, or subscribe to The Bridge on iTunes. 
in the next installment of The Bridge. We could talk about the NBA playoffs to see where some of the teams currently stand. We could take a look in the MLB and see what teams have gotten off to a hot start or what teams might be struggling or whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.